Thank you, Marty. Um, okay, let's turn to Revelation 9, fellow students. Uh, you know, this, um, <clears throat> this series is uh, working me over, shall we say. Uh, when I say fellow students is because I assume that you're studying as well and you can look at the color of my hair and you know I'm doing something, hopefully as steady. Okay, just a brief overview before we're, we're going to do the last half of 15 of the first several verses of chapter 12, I mean 11 and 12. Revelation is all about one thing. It's about the return of the king, right? Jesus Christ is coming back. What's essential for you and I to remember in the middle of all of the mess of the current culture, the mess in the world, when you read the paper, you tend to get discouraged. You absolutely must remember that he is coming back. Yes? This broken, sinful world is not the end of the story. Uh, for the believer, every day you live is one day closer to heaven, right? You know, it's interesting, for the Christian, uh, there really is happily ever after. There really is. Ever seen the movie Ever After? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the closing line of that movie is, these people, they really lived. Yeah, well, you know, when you get to heaven, you really live. That's what this is all about. But between now and then, right, between now and then, it's not always happy, and we understand that. So the big picture is we're in the middle of Revelation, uh, Revelation 6 through 18. The central portion of Revelation covers a seven-year period of time called the Great Tribulation. In that seven-year period that's covered from chapter 6 to chapter 18, there are three sets of judgments that God imposes on planet Earth to, number one, deal with sin, and number two, push people to repentance so he can take them to heaven with him. There's three sets of judgments. There's seven, seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, and seven bowl judgments. God does not take delight in punishment, but God's holiness cannot tolerate sin. So throughout this book, you're going to see God punishing sin and God over and over and over again proclaiming the gospel, arranging for the gospel to be heard so that people can come to faith in Christ and spend eternity with him. So we're now in the last half of chapter 11. It's understood by most scholars that the seven seal judgments, where we've been, and the seven trumpet judgments, when we're almost done with, occur in the first half of the revelation. But remember, first half of the tribulation. But there's differing opinions here. So I will give you my opinion and why I have that. But understand, there's really competent scholars that have different opinions, especially on the timing of things that happen in Revelation. So we're on the last half of chapter 11. The seventh trumpet is about to sound. We've heard six trumpets at this point in time. The seventh trumpet is about to sound. But what's interesting, you must understand, that the results of the seventh trumpet don't show up until Revelation 15. So the trumpet's going to sound in chapter 11, and then you have chapter 12, 13, and 14. And then in chapter 15, only do you see the consequences of the trumpet that sounded in chapter 11. So chapters 12 and 14 are a bit of an interlude, and I'm going to take you through that, Lord willing, in the next few weeks. Remember, chapters 6 through 9 of Revelation record the tribulation from God's point of view. God's point of view is chapter 6 through 9. We're now going to be looking at chapters 12, 13, and 14. We're looking at the tribulation events from Satan's point of view and from the Antichrist's point of view. So we're looking at the same events, if you will, but from a different perspective. 
So when you look at Revelation, not everything occurs chronologically. One of the things I was talking to Brian about earlier this week is sometime in the next three or four weeks, I really want to give you a bit of an overview of timelines. And this is very tricky because there's a lot of conflicting opinions about when things occur in a Revelation sequence. And like I said, there's competent scholars, but I think if you get a, bi a bit of an overview, it'll be able to understand the details a little bit better. So here's the key idea for today. The long war between God and Satan will intensify, that's your key word, until King Jesus returns. So be prepared. So we're going to talk about why you should be prepared and how you should do that. Let's dive in. Chapter 11, verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded, and there arose a loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. If you've ever listened to Handel's Messiah, you know that that's a key phrase at the very last of the choruses. So the first response to this seventh trumpet is not consequences on earth. It's not pain on earth. It's praise in heaven. What does it say? When the voices say the kingdom of our Lord has become the kingdom of his Christ and he shall reign forever ever and ever, we have loud voices in heaven that are praising God because there's a regime change. We are now going to experience a change of kings on planet earth. It says, in your Bible, does it say kingdoms or kingdom? Singular. Kingdom. You must understand that it is kingdom singular. The reality is, on the world today, you have all these various nations, you have these various languages, you have these various religions, you have these various political interest groups, you've got these various alignments. There's only one kingdom on planet Earth. And there's only one current ruler of this current age, and who is that? Satan is the current world ruler, correct? Matthew 4, verse 8 9 says that Satan is the god of this age. So this world is ruled by Satan for now. What we're really talking about in Revelation is God repossessing his planet and how he's going to go about that process. When Jesus Christ establishes his kingdom, Satan's kingdom is going to be destroyed. And that's where we come to the phrase, the kingdom of this world, the current regime of this world, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Jesus Christ is taking back his planet. <clears throat> so the world's rightful king is King Jesus and his return is in hand. You know that you cannot have two sovereigns on the throne at one time, right? If we look at that really practically, you can't have two sovereigns. Um, okay, I'm gonna stick my foot really deep into it. For those of you who try to have two sovereigns in your marriage, life gets real interesting, right? Who shall rule in the house? Now, the truth of it is, husband and wife, neither of you are sovereign. You are both servant. There is a big difference between sovereign and servant. Who is sovereign in your house ain't you. It's Jesus Christ. And we, very practically speaking here, I'm taking a bit of a detour, but hopefully a practical one. In our family life, when we fail to understand that he is sovereign and we're not, we get into all sorts of deep trouble with each other. Right? That's why we, we, it just doesn't work very well. You cannot have two sovereigns in the universe or in a family only one can rule. How many have ever seen The Lord of the Rings? The poem in The Lord of the Rings says, one ring to rule them all, right? Well, we just mistranslate it. It should be one king to rule them all, and that king is King Jesus, and he's coming back to take over. 
So the seventh trumpet announces the return of the king, the coming of the kingdom of God, and the ending of the kingdom of Satan. It's interesting that it says it with such surety that it's spoken of in the past tense. Hasn't happened yet. But it says, has become. So the scripture is so certain, God's word is so certain, the coming of Jesus Christ to take over his planet is spoken of as having already happened. Even though it really, we don't see it consummated until chapter 20 and 21. Now, if you want a cross-reference on this, Daniel 7 predicted this centuries and centuries and centuries before. Daniel 7, 14. Then to him, to Jesus Christ, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and all nations and all languages should serve him. His dominion, his rule, is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed. What is he saying? The reign of Jesus Christ, when he establishes his rule on planet Earth, will last forever, right? It literally translates in the Hebrew, unto the ages of the ages. It literally is world without end. Christ's reign will never end. You know what's one of the most wonderful things about Jesus Christ's reign? There's never going to be a palace coup. There's never going to be an election in heaven. You don't get to elect your sovereign, right? We're going to see if we're, we're going to, we're going to, you know, he doesn't stand for a vote, correct? You can't impeach King Jesus and he ain't going to resign. That should be extraordinary good news for you and I, right? You should take great comfort in the fact that Jesus Christ's kingdom is eternal. It is indestructible and it is permanent. And that gives us tremendous comfort that our God reigns. We sang that this morning. So when the announcement of Christ's eternal reign is announced, look at verse 16. How does heaven respond? How does heaven respond? We're going to get into how earth responds in a second. How does heaven respond when the announcement is made that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord? So it's a regime change. The kingdom of Satan is going to be destroyed. The kingdom of God is coming. What happens in heaven? Verse 16. And the 24 elders who sit in their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. Now, we, have we seen this before? We've seen this before in chapter 4, right? The 24 elders represent the redeemed and raptured church in heaven, now in heaven. And when they hear the declaration that Jesus will reign forever and ever, they immediately fall on their faces and worship. Here's the principle. In God's presence, on your face is proper. It physically reminds you who is sovereign and who is slave. I strongly encourage all of us in this room from time to time, if not regularly, spend some time praying with your face into the carpet. It's extraordinarily good for your soul for you to be on your face before your king, right? When we run into an earthly king, see, we don't understand monarchy very well, and that's not all bad because some monarchs, are, all monarchs are broken people. But typically speaking in history past, when a king came into the room, you did what? Bow the knee, we say bow the knee. And yet we come into the presence of our sovereign with a great deal of casualness. Hey, you up there, I need blah, 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 blah. Really? You wouldn't treat a president like that. You wouldn't treat one for long that way. They'd take care of you, right? This is the king of kings. Heaven worships on their face. And you know something? They're sinless. In heaven. 
and they're on their face. So what about us sinful people? You think we ought to be on our face? Really good idea to pray on your face from time to time. It reminds us who's sovereign and who is slave. And I know some people have a real hard time with that. I am not God's slave. Yeah, you really are. He said he redeemed you from the slave market of sin. He bought you with a price with his precious blood. Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? Obey me. Does it say you can obey some of the things I tell you or all the things I tell you? We're love slaves, folks. That's what we are. We have to remember that. Verse 17. The folks that are on their face, the 24 elders, which represents the redeemed church in heaven, says, We give thee thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who art and who wast, because thou hast taken thy great power and begun to reign. Now, thanks is something we give to God because he's the source of blessing. And it says the Almighty. Almighty speaks of irresistible power. Absolutely no uh, utter supremacy over whatever happens to be in the universe. And this should give us great comfort as well. And it says, you have begun to reign. See, God is sovereign over the entire created order. And he has appointed in his divine wisdom a seven-year period of time that he is going to take back his planet. Could he take it back all at once? Of course. God could vaporize the whole place. As a matter of fact, when I look at human behavior, there are many times I wonder why he just doesn't say, done, <laughs> you know, and just nuke it, you know. But in his mercy, he gives us seven years. Do you know why he takes seven years? He's not willing that any should perish. He wants people to repent. All throughout the Revelation, you see all these judgments, and it's so easy to get hung up in the pain and the suffering, and you don't see the grace. Over and over, he's preaching. He has his seven, he has, he has 144,000. He's got his two witnesses, right? He's got an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying, repent, come, I want you in heaven with me. So don't lose the, 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 the mercy that God gives us for this seven-year period of time. Heaven rejoices at Jesus' coronation. How does the earth respond? when the coronation of Jesus is announced, verse 18. And the nations were what? Enraged. And thy wrath came, God's wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to give their rewards to thy bondservants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear thy name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. Now we're back on earth. The nations are enraged. By the way, that word enraged is not fearful rage. They're defiant. The nations are saying, I'm not going to accept Jesus Christ's rule. I want to rule. I'm not going to submit. They're very hostile toward God and Christ. And if you want to cross-reference, you just have to go back to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 says, verse 2, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against who? Against the Lord and against his anointed Jesus Christ. They don't want to be ruled. They want to rule. And as a result of their rebellion, the next phrase says, God's wrath came. God's wrath. The word there is orge, the Greek. And it doesn't mean a loss of temper. It means God, God's wrath towards sin means God has a very settled disposition to destroy anything that corrupts his creation. Do you know that God hates anything that is not holy? He hates it. Any more than you can tolerate cancer in your body because of what it does to you, it'll destroy you. God hates sin because of what it does to the people he loves. It destroys us. 
It destroys us. I'm fascinated that we, or intrigued as John would say, that we humans tolerate sin more than God tolerates sin. We sometimes are very comfortable with our sin, and God says, why would you put this rattlesnake in your sleeping bag? Come on, this is dangerous, right? It'll kill you sooner or later. So God is intolerant of sin. But even though God hates sin, God never, ever loses his temper. God never loses his temper. God never reacts. He always acts. If God did not hate sin, he would not be holy. It says, God hates sin, and the time is coming for the dead to be judged. Are we all going to be dead someday? If the rapture doesn't come, we're all going to be dead someday. Here's the principle. Everyone will stand before Jesus for judgment. Everyone will stand before Jesus for judgment. Rewards for the saved, destruction for the unsaved. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. By the way, everyone lives forever. Somewhere. There's only two locations you're going to live forever. One is with God in heaven. One is separated from God in hell. It says the, the dead are going to be judged and the time to give their rewards is coming. You know the greatest of all rewards possible that you can ever have? Yeah. Eternal life. Eternal life. It's the greatest gift in the world. You get to spend eternity with Jesus Christ in heaven. Together forever. That's the greatest reward of all, to know God and live in His presence forever, John 17. Now, everyone who is saved is saved by grace alone. You know that, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. But 1 Corinthians 3, 15 tells us that those who are saved by grace will be rewarded for their service, rewarded for their service to Jesus. See, Satan lies to us pretty routinely. Has Satan ever told you that God is not a good God? Has Satan ever told you that God does not treat you fair? Satan never told you if God really loved you, he would give you your way. <laughs> Has your three-year-old ever told you that if you really loved them, they would give you your way? Yeah, yeah, there's not much difference between us and three-year-olds. I, I understand, right? God rewards his own. Revelation 22:12. Revelation 22:12. Behold, Jesus says, I am coming quickly and my reward is what? With me. I'm bringing the reward with me. To render to every man according to what he has done. So the rewards of serving Jesus, of obeying God, are literally out of this world. Literally. They last forever. Right? The rewards we get here. How many of you have a blue ribbon you haven't looked at in a while? <laughs> or a trophy that's gathering dust? I'm telling you, the rewards of serving Jesus last forever. So the question is, who gets rewarded? Go to the next phrase. What does it say? This is an interesting list. Bond servants. You know what bond servants are? Dulos. You know what dulos is? Slaves. Remember we talked about sovereigns and slaves? Jesus said, who's going to get a reward? Bond servants get rewarded. Prophets get rewarded. Saints. Who are saints? Every one of you are saints. Bought with the blood of the Lamb. You're saints. Called to be saints, right? You're saints based on what Jesus has done, not what you have done. Those who fear thy name, the small and the great. So everyone who's been bought with the blood of the Lamb, everyone who has been faithful in serving their king will receive their reward. And I say this because I want to encourage you in your service to Jesus Christ. I know many of you don't think you're serving Jesus Christ. You're just taking care of a loved one or babysitting the grandkids or driving an elderly person to the doctor. That is serving Jesus Christ if you're doing it for Jesus' glory. It doesn't matter what you do. If you do it to honor Jesus Christ, 
It matters. Don't think that, oh my gosh, I got to teach a class, I got to do this. You know, what did Jesus say? You give a cup of cold water to someone in my name, right, for my glory, because you love me, you're not going to read, you will receive your reward. So many of you are serving each other, serving the body of Christ, serving the lost in very, very unseen ways. And I want to encourage you that that matters. That matters. God never, ever forgets. He knows that. Some of you drive the tram. Some people here take blowers and blow off sidewalks. You know something? That counts. That counts. Don't believe that it's got to be great in the sight of man for it to count. What does the last phrase say? The small and the great will receive their reward. There's no small and great in God's size, just our size. God is no respecter of a person. He promises to reward those who love him. I've said this before in this class. I say it again. I'm very, very convinced that, that the people who receive the rewards in heaven, they're probably on thrones way out of sight. They're probably way in a part of heaven that I'm not, right? Will be people that we don't even know on planet Earth. And we've got a lot of them in this church. You know who they are? They're the 80-year-olds that you don't see, but they're prayer warriors. They're the ones that, they don't have an upfront position, but they serve Jesus every day. They may tie knots, they may knit, they may do the uh, ministry, the blanket ministry. It's, it's all the stuff. You understand what I'm saying? Don't stop serving Jesus. It's going to pay beyond your wildest imaginations. But the contrary to that is it says, God says, I'm going to destroy those who destroy the earth. Who are those that destroy the earth? People that are committed to following Satan and refuse to repent. See, sin destroys everything God values. Everything God values, sin destroys. So God says, i got to destroy that which is going to destroy what I love. Anybody who refuses to repent is going to stand before the great white throat judgment in Revelation 20. We're going to get to that. That judgment's only for the unsaved. Those who have rejected Christ and chosen to follow Satan. So anyone who's following Satan is destroying the earth because you are bringing sin into the planet and destroying what God loves. And he says, I'm going to destroy that. But I'm going to give you an opportunity to repent. So, verse 19. When sin is destroyed, one of the greatest of all treasures is heaven becomes accessible. Really accessible. Verse 19. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was... Underline that word. Underline that word. And the ark of the covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, sounds and peals of thunder, great earthquake and great hailstorm. The temple in heaven was open. This refers to God's presence. You know what he's promising there? Access. Access. You can have access to God's presence. What's happening here is our Heavenly Father is throwing His house open, He's throwing His arms open, and He's welcoming redeemed people into His house. God is the ultimate hospitable host at that point. You have unrestricted access to Almighty God. I remember years ago seeing uh, the movie Star Wars way back in the day. And I was always intrigued that to get to wisdom and understanding and power, what did Luke Skywalker have to do? He had to travel to another world where this little three-and-a-half-foot pygmy guy named Yoda, right, was. He had to go someplace, right? Do you have to go someplace to receive wisdom and forgiveness and contact with Almighty God? He lives in you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. 
If you need to contact God, you just talk with him. You don't have to travel to some ashram or do these, you know, mighty deeds or something to impress God. You're his child. Does your kid or your grandkid have to perform some marvelous act to get to your heart? They say, Grandma, Grandpa, blah, 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 what do you do? You're all mushballs. I know you. You're, you're just worthless. You go, oh, honey, whatever you want. You can have sugar. I'll ruin you and let your parents deal with it, you know. Paybacks, man, you know. I'm, you know, we're really going to rock their world. You'll be up at 2 a.m. You want a little coffee? I mean, you know. Because we love our children or grandchildren. Our Heavenly Father loves us. Sometimes I'm amazed. I mean, if I'm, if I'm awake and aware, I'm always amazed that He loves us. But anyway... Heaven is open. John MacArthur points out that Revelation has a lot of openings, which is very intriguing. In chapter 4, a door is open. In chapter 6, seals are open. In chapter 9, the abyss is open. Right here, the temple of God is open. In 15, chapter 15, the tabernacle of the testimony is open. In chapter 19, heaven is open. In chapter 20, the books of judgment are open. You know what the name Revelation means? Apocalypsis, it literally means an unveiling. It means an opening. The whole book means an opening. So what the Lord has done for us here, He is opening for us what was closed. He opens our understanding about His plan for the future, right? And He does that for lots and lots and lots of reasons because He wants us to know. And it says the Ark of the Covenant appears in the temple as well. The Ark of the Covenant, especially the mercy seat, was where God dwelled with humankind in the Old Testament. The mercy seat was the place of atonement, the place of sacrifice, the place where God and man could be reconciled. And now, heaven's available. Heaven's accessible. Okay, <laughs> chapter 12. We're no longer chronologically in effect. I want you to think about chapter 12 through 14, three chapters, as a drama. There's a drama in these three chapters, and there's six characters. I want you to get your pencils out or your pens out. I want you to underline them as we come to them. In chapter 12, there's four of the characters. Four of the characters. We've got the woman, we've got the dragon, we've got the male child, and we've got the archangel Michael. So in the first chapter, chapter 12, you're going to have four main characters in this drama. The woman, the dragon, the male child, the archangel Michael. On stage in chapters 13 and 14, especially 13, you're going to see the beast from the sea and the beast from the land. So we have six characters in this drama in chapters 12, 13, and 14. And these three chapters now take place during the last half of the tribulation. So we're going to be shifting gears. We've been kind of mid-trip here. Now we're going into the last half. So chapter 12 really takes us back because it depicts the War of the Ages, the original Star Wars. This is the original spiritual Star Wars. It's important you understand the entire creation has been in the state of constant state of war since the rebellion of Lucifer. Lucifer, who became Satan at his rebellion, hates God. And he wants to be God. He wants the worship of God. And so he led a mutiny in heaven prior to Adam and Eve's fall. Uh, he led a mutiny in heaven and one-third of the angels followed him. And in Genesis 3, you will see that Satan deceived Adam and Eve into rebelling against God as well. So the human race got drug into this cosmic war in Genesis 3. If you don't understand that we are, the earth is a primary battlefield, you will never understand what's going on in the world. You absolutely must embrace that paradigm. Satan has attempted to destroy the perfection of heaven and the paradise of earth, and he's corrupted both, and that's why both are going to be cleansed. 
Now, this cosmic conflict between God and Satan is going to reach its climax in this seven-year period. So when you look at this tribulation period, you go, man, how come, it's so, how come there's always this war? How come there's so much conflict? Well, you've had a cosmic conflict going on for millennium, I don't know how long, between God and Satan, and it's going to reach its climax right here. Satan is going to pour out all his fury on the godly people. God's going to pour out his fury on the ungodly. So we've got a massive conflict going on during this seven-year period, and that's why you see so many judgments come down. Chapter 12, verse 1, let's dive into this. It says, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman, number one drama character, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head, a crown of seven stars. It says, a great. By the way, in this chapter, four times it says, great. A great sign, a great dragon. Rob will get to all this a little later on. You know, in the Greek, it's megas, 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 right? A great, great sign. So chapter verse 1, 3, 12, and 14, word great. So this must have been a huge vision. It was a mega vision. And it says there's a sign. From Revelation 12 to the end of the book, there are seven major signs. This is the first one. Now, a sign is a symbol that points to something else, something that is real. How many of you ever driven to Fresno? How many of you, sorry, you ever had to do that? I'm sorry. <laughs> when you drive to Fresno, you see signs that say what? Fresno, 85 miles or 75 miles. You need to understand the sign is not the city, right? The sign points to the city. The sign is a symbol of what is to come. It's the real city of Fresno. I say that because the normal way of interpreting Scripture is literally. It says what it means. It means what it says. We've said before, when the Holy Spirit wants you to interpret a text symbolically, He tells you. Well, He tells you. He said, I saw a sign. That means this is a symbol of something else. There is not a literal massive woman in heaven. Okay? It's a sign, and He tells you that. It's a woman who represents something else. So the first character in this drama is a woman. It's interesting, in the book of Revelation, there are four women mentioned, four symbolic women. In chapter 2, we have Jezebel of Thyatira. She represents paganism, pagan people who practice and teach idolatry. In chapter 17 is a scarlet woman. This is a prostitute, a harlot, who represents the apostate church who commits spiritual adultery with the world. In Revelation 19, we have the woman who is the bride of Christ, chaste and ready for her husband, ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. She represents the church. This woman in chapter 12, I'll just tell you right up front, represents Israel, the Jewish people. So each of these women represent a spiritual reality, but they have historical roots. By the way, there really was a wicked pagan queen named Jezebel, okay? So this woman is clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet on her head a crown of 12 stars. And if you remember anything about the Old Testament, you go back to Genesis 37, what does this remind you of? Who had a dream? Joseph had a dream in which the sun and the moon and the 11 stars did what? Bowed down before him and he told his dream to his father, Jacob, and Jacob got pretty hot and he said, do you really think your mother and your brothers and I are actually going to come down and bow down before you? Sure enough, they did, right? Here in Revelation, this woman is clothed with the sun, which represents glory, obviously glory, light. Clothing protects us from the elements, so th this woman is clothed and protected and sheltered. 
The moon under her feet, uh, it could be a, she's trampling down the moon, but more likely she is supported by the moon. Her position is secure. The crown on her head is 12 stars, which of course refers to the 12 tribes of Israel. It's the imagery of God's promise to protect, support, and exalt his chosen people. Now, I've read commentaries that say this is the church. Well, the problem is in the next verse, we're going to find out this woman gives birth to a child. Did the church birth Jesus? No. Jesus birthed the church. So it's obviously this woman can't be the church, right? I've heard this church is, uh, is uh, Mary. Mary obviously uh, uh, birthed Jesus at that point in time. We're going to see Mary later on, and I'll get to that here in a second. This particular woman in verse 2 is with child. And she cries out, being in labor and pain to give birth. So this woman, Israel, in our belief system, is depicted here as a pregnant woman. She's about to give birth. She's seen as a mother. Who was the first mother? Eve. Eve was deceived and fell into sin. And God, in the most ironic of all promises, and one of the most miraculous of all promises, says, Eve, you were deceived by Satan. Through you, through woman, I am going to bring the seed of the woman who will redeem man as a result of your fall and crush the source of the deception, Satan. So God uses human weakness in order to accomplish his divine purposes again. See, Satan knows that the redeemer, the seed of the woman, is going to do what? Crush his head, Genesis 3.15. Do you think Satan believed that? I think he really believed that, right? Satan has had to locate and destroy the particular bloodline of the woman that's going to produce the Messiah that's going to destroy him. Because if Messiah ever gets born, Satan knows he's toast. You cannot explain most of the Old Testament unless you understand this. Satan's been targeting Israel for destruction ever since Genesis 12. What happened to Genesis 12? God said to Abraham, Abraham, through you, what? I'm going to bless the entire world. Who's listening to that besides Abraham? Satan's not stupid. He goes, whoa, whoa, bless the entire world. This sounds like the seed of the woman that's going to crush my head. This sounds like the Messiah. We better do something about this. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. No nation has suffered as long as the nation of Israel because Satan knew the Messiah had to be a Jew. Satan hates Israel because they were the source of the Redeemer who was going to kill him. Other interesting thing. This woman who's giving birth in verse 2. Is there any mention of a father anywhere? Could be indicating of the virgin birth, huh? So this radiant woman is the nation of Israel is going to give birth to Jesus the Messiah. That's character number one. Character number two, another sign, another symbol appeared in heaven, verse three. And behold, a great red dragon having what? Seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. So the second character is a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. It's, it's remarkable to me... Interesting, Satan is called a dragon in Revelation 13 times. I, I've always had, Friday the 13th has been some of my very best days. But it's interesting that he, in 13 times he says Satan's a dragon in Revelation. Now dragons were mythical creatures as far as we know, although Job talks about Leviathan and a few, few other things, but they were viewed as very terrifying monsters because they could breathe fire they ate everything in sight. They were massive and deadly, and they could fly. 
So dragons were always indicative of evil, destruction in the Bible. This dragon was colored what? Literally fiery red, which speaks of blood, destruction, death. Jesus said that Satan was a murderer from the beginning, which very much fits dragons, right? Dragons may be very nurturing to their young, but they probably aren't going to be nurturing to your young because they're voracious. They're predators, right? They like to eat things. Verse 9 tells us who this dragon is. If you just jump ahead, we're not going to get to it today, but verse 9 identifies who's the dragon. What does it say? And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called what? The devil and Satan. So we don't have to worry about who this dragon is. We know this dragon is Satan. And he's described as having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. So he's depicted, how many of you are familiar with Greek mythology and you understand what a hydra is? How many of you ever read any Greek mythology at all? You were never forced to read any, read any Greek mythology at North High? Really? Come on, come on. A hydra is a monster with seven heads. Multiple heads. And when you cut one of the heads off, it grew two more. Right? So, you know, the more you cut, the more heads you got at that point in time. So this dragon, this Satan, is viewed as a seven-headed monster. Historical research, by the way, a number of commentators, pretty conservative commentators, believe that these seven heads, seven heads represent seven successive world empires, all of which were affected or controlled by Satan. These world empires are Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and the final world empire, which is yet to come, one world government at that point. So Satan obviously is very interested in influencing world empires and even controlling them. Daniel 10 tells us that. So under God's sovereign control, Satan is attempting to use each one of these empires to do what? Thwart God's purposes on earth. See, Satan is very uncreative. Satan has created nothing. All Satan does is play chess with God and loses consistently because God has a plan and Satan's running around trying to stop that plan, trying to stall that plan, trying to thwart that plan, and it's not working. So we have this, dot, this, this dragon with seven heads, and it says ten horns and seven crowns with diadems. Now, a diadem is a crown. A diadem is a crown which indicates rule. So these world empires occupy a place of rule and authority. It says the seventh head has seven heads. We've gone through six empires. We have one more empire to come. The final world empire is going to be controlled by who? The Antichrist. We're going to find that out in the next chapter. Consists of a ten-nation confederacy. So here's the picture. We have a dragon, Satan, has ten heads, or seven heads. Six of those are world empires that have already come. The last one is the world empire yet to come. The one world government, that one is yet to come. We haven't seen the seventh one yet at that point in time. And this final head has ten horns. Ten horns. So the seventh head, the final world empire, has ten horns. A horn in Scripture always represents strength and power like animals, animals' head. The seventh head is the final world empire, and it's going to consist of a ten-nation confederacy. And I've got a lot more to say about this next few months, so we're going to get into that. If you want to cross-check this, go to Daniel 7. Daniel 7, for those of you that like to do a little research, Daniel 7 tells us that these ten horns represent ten kings or ten nation-states. 
So the final world empire, the one that is to come, the one that you see here all throughout this uh, uh, tribulation period, the final world empire is going to consist of a ten-nation confederacy or coalition and is going to be controlled by <laughs> Satan through the Antichrist, who's going to run it. He's going to be the prime minister of the planet. So let's talk about a little history about the dragon. We're going to get into this ten-nation confederacy a whole lot more later. Verse 4. This dragon had a tail, and the tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. It seems to refer to the original rebellion of Satan in heaven. Uh, if you're looking for a couple of very, very solid cross-checks, I think it's Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Isaiah 14 tells us that Satan fell from heaven through because of pride. Five times Satan said, I will, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Ezekiel 28 tells us that Satan was the prime minister of heaven. Number two. It says he was the anointed cherub that covered. He was the highest of all the created beings. He, he ran the worship in heaven. He was the choir leader in heaven, but he got deposed because he wanted to overthrow God. He wanted to run the world. Also says right here, if you look, it says a third of the stars of heaven fell to earth. Seems to indicate that a third of God's angels followed Satan in rebellion. So these fallen angels, otherwise known as demons, were ejected from heaven. And when they were ejected from heaven, where did they go to live? They didn't go to Mars, people. There's no people on Mars. They went here, right? They live in your neighborhood. And you've got some neighbors that you think they live in, right? Okay, I, I understand that, right? Of course, your neighbors might think sometimes that they live in you too. But anyway, not you. Nobody here. You guys are all uh, spirit-filled all the time. I get it. So they were ejected from heaven, and they now occupy earth. Unfortunately, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve joined themselves to Satan in rebellion against God. So on planet Earth right now, you want to know why the Earth is a mess? I'll tell you, there's at least three major conflicts going on on planet Earth, minimum. Number one, God and Satan are at war. God's followers, good angels, are at war with Satan's fallen angels, right? So you got one level of conflict. Number two, anybody who's following Satan today is at war with God. Human people that are followers of Satan hate God, and that's why they hate you. They're deceived, right? They're following a loser, but they're deceived into thinking he's actually going to win. Number three, and this is one where God's people are asleep at the wheel. You are in a war with Satan. He wants you dead. Do you understand? He wants you dead. We've said multiple times in this class, most of the church of Jesus Christ lives like this planet is Disneyland. It ain't Disneyland, it's Afghanistan. You don't go to war in Afghanistan with flip-flops and a bathing suit. It's a good way to lose body parts, right? You go prepared, equipped. That's why Ephesians 6 is so important. So the reality is Earth has been a war zone ever since Genesis 3. And we're in that battle. Well, I'll give you one way we know. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might babysit her child. <laughs> Is that what it says? It says he's going to kill and eat her child like a dragon, right? Consume. 
Satan's been trying to kill the Messiah ever since Genesis 3. Now, get your historical hats on. I want you to get an overview of the Old Testament. Satan's been trying to kill the Messiah ever since Genesis 3. Who killed Abel? Cain. Cain. Why did he kill him? Satan thought Abel was the Messiah. God said to Eve, your seed is going to destroy the serpent. You go, well, it's obvious that there was 2,000 years before. No, there wasn't. Satan's not stupid. He goes, Abel might be the one. It's clear God accepted his sacrifice. Maybe he's the Messiah. I better take him out. Incited Cain to kill Abel. Satan corrupted the seed of the woman in Genesis 6, using demons to cohabit with human women so he could corrupt the gene pool so Messiah couldn't be born of the seed of the woman. No Messiah, right? Can't happen if the seed of the woman's corrupted. Who tried to prevent Abraham from fathering Isaac? Abraham and Sarah were very content with Ishmael. They would have stayed with Ishmael, except the Lord said, he's not the son of the promise. 25 years later, they got the son of the promise. They would have stayed with Ishmael. God said, that's not the son of the promise. It's not the bloodline besides it's going to come from. Exodus 1. Pharaoh tries to kill all of the male Hebrew children, right? Throw them in the Nile River. Who do you think was behind that trying to wipe out the Hebrew race so that there would be no bloodline for the Messiah to be born of? Think Satan had something to do with that? Why did Saul try and kill David? God had promised Messiah was going to come from the bloodline of David. Satan's not stupid. If I kill David before he can father children in the bloodline, we're done. I'm home free. Messiah won't be born and my head won't get crushed. Over and over and over and over again, Satan corrupts Israel through idolatry. In Numbers 19, we have the tragedy at Baal. Peor, Balaam goes in and says, you know, I know God wants to bless Israel. I can't curse them, but I'll get you to arrange it so God will take them out himself. Just get all those young ladies from Moab, bring them in here, seduce these Israeli males, have them involved in sexual sin and idolatry, and God will wipe them out himself. No Messiah. My head is saved. Satan's not stupid. He uses Athaliah, Jezebel's daughter, to kill all the royal heirs of David line. There was only one heir left named Joash. We were one heir left from having no bloodline to Messiah. Do you know how close that is? One heir. And if Jehoshabeth hadn't grabbed him and saved him, we wouldn't have a bloodline and we'd have no Messiah. Impossible. Who influenced Haman, and Hitler, by the way, to attempt to genocide the entire Jewish race? Do you think Satan's behind that? Duh. Yeah, big time. Who influenced Herod to try and kill all the babies at Bethlehem under two years old? we got to get rid of this Messiah. He's been born. I couldn't stop him from being born, but let's kill him before he grows up. Who tempted Jesus to try and jump, a jump off a tower of the temple? If I can get him to jump off and an angel doesn't show up in time, he's dead. I'm home free. In Jesus' hometown, the Nazareth leadership tried to throw him off a cliff in his own hometown. You don't think they had a little satanic help? 
See, one of the things we don't understand, we read the Old Testament, we go, we don't have a red, we don't have an organizing principle. The Old Testament is a story of how God is moving his people, five, six of the Bibles about Israel, through the, the changes he wants them to, to produce a Messiah to save the world. Most of the conflict in the Old Testament is Satan trying to thwart that plan. And if you look at stuff that happens in the Old Testament and say, what's going on in the heavenly places behind this story, you will begin to understand it. Even today, we've had a United Nations since 1945. The vast majority of the resolutions in the United States, the vast majority in the United Nations have involved Israel. Israel's not a world power. It's six million people. Why does it occupy so much attention? Why does everybody hate Israel? You don't think Satan's working in capitals all over the world trying to wipe them out? Uh-huh. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. So, Satan finally incites the Jewish leadership and Pilate to condemn Jesus to death, and they kill him, and he killed the child, but he's got a problem. He couldn't keep him dead. See, hell was happy for only three days. <laughs> only three days. After that, the party's over. Jesus rose from the dead. The predetermined plan of God paid for our sins set us free. So now who does Satan want to kill? You have a target on your chest. Stop sleeping and saying, I just want to be friends with everybody. No, you don't. If you're a friend of God, you're an enemy of the world. Here's the principle. Hang your hat on this. God's plans will succeed despite Satan's opposition, so be encouraged. Be encouraged. Verse 5. Israel gives birth to a son. The bloodline of the Messiah came true. A male child who is to rule all the world with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up to God. So the, this child, this male child, is Jesus Christ. Jesus is born right on Seth's schedule. He's going to rule. By the way, Holly, you would be interested. The word for rule here is poema, which means to herd, pasture, lead, guide, and protect like a shepherd. However, before he rules like a shepherd, he's going to rule with a rod of iron. Psalm 2 tells us that those nations that oppose the rule, the shepherd rule of King Jesus will be dashed to pieces like potter's vessels. The nations are enraged. They don't want to accept his rule. He gets a rod of iron. He's going to rule. Whether or not people like it or not, King Jesus is going to rule the nations. You ever had a parent tell you when you were younger, you can do this the easy way, <laughs> or you can do this the hard way. How many of you, you've got some scar tissue, I can see. Yeah. Okay. I would encourage you that when the Son of God is ruling the planet, that you submit and so he doesn't have to get the rod of iron out. But he will rule, whether people like it or not at that point. It says her child was caught up to God. That's the ascension. That was also his heavenly coronation. And it says, the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she might be nourished for 1,260 days. We're going to spend a lot of time on this later on. This occurs right near the end of the seven-year tribulation. And if you want to cross-reference on this, go to Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. Jesus tells the Jews that are living in the land at the time of the Great Tribulation, when you see the abomination of desolation, don't go into your house to get your stuff split. Right? Don't even go in the house to get a pair of shoes. You get out of Dodge right now. The abomination of desolation we're going to spend a lot more time on. It's when the Antichrist sets up an image of himself in the Holy of Holies. 
and commands everyone to worship it upon penalty of death. That's the abomination of desolation. Jesus said, when you see that, get out of Dodge now, right? Now we're going to spend a lot of time on that coming up. What he's saying is I'm going to protect the remnant of the Jewish people in the wilderness. Many people think that will probably be on Petra or southern Jordan, so we'll spend a lot more time on that. Okay, here's the key idea. Let's do a quick review. The long war between God and Satan will intensify until King Jesus returns. You know what that means? Your life as a believer is going to get harder. Give up the notion that it's going to get comfortable when you retire. Stop it. It's a battle zone and you are going to be in warfare until Jesus takes you home. Right? Don't believe the lie that I can just retire someplace and, you know, go to my barbecues and do my fifth wheel for 12 months a year and recreation and travel. Get real. Don't get, you're, you're in the battle. Figure it out, right? Number two. In God's presence, this is verse 16, by the way, on your face is proper posture. It physically reminds you who is sovereign and who is slave. By the way, on your face is where there's power. You want power, you get on your face before God. I've talked to so many of you in the last several months. You're dealing with situations, many of you, there is no human solution. There is no human solution to many of the things that we deal with. There is no human solution. You know what that means? Get on your face and ask for a divine solution. If God doesn't move, we're toast. That's reality. It is reality. Remember who's sovereign. Number three, everyone will stand before Jesus for judgment. The saved will be rewarded. The unsaved will be condemned. I don't think we have any idea of how much God wants to bless us, both here and in the life to come. Don't get seduced by the trinkets of this life and forsake the treasures that are to come. It's unbelievable. Don't get seduced with the trinkets. The treasures are around you every day for obeying God. And the last one, all of God's plans will succeed despite satanic opposition, so be encouraged. And I'm not talking about global plans. God's plan for your life, God's plan for your tomorrow. God's, God has a plan for you on Monday morning. Did you know that? I know you may not figure it out until you have three cups of coffee, but he has a plan for your Monday. And Satan will try and detract you from that. Satan will try and distract you from that. Satan will oppose that. God's plans for your life are going to succeed despite satanic opposition. And if you want to know that, get on your face before your sovereign. Amen? Okay. That was a little wimpy amen. Amen? amen. All right. Now that you know, go and do...